Grace and peace be yours in abundance from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What has Jerusalem to do with Athens? That's the rhetorical question famously asked by the second century theologian Tertullian. Now, you may have heard that name Tertullian before, as it was this same Tertullian who is credited with coining the term Trinity. But more on that next month, now that we finally see Trinity again on our liturgical horizon. But back to the question, what was Tertullian getting at when he asked, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens? I think we can answer that question by measuring the distance between the two. It is 778 miles from Athens, Greece, to Jerusalem, Israel, as the crow flies. But that's hardly the distance Tertullian was actually alluding to. Rather, he's referring to the critical 18 inches from here, my head, to right there in my heart, and your head and your heart as well. That's what Tertullian had in mind, because it's that distance which covers the ground between having a mere head knowledge concerning Jesus of Nazareth versus what Peter in today's epistle lesson describes as honoring Christ as Lord in your hearts, looking to Jesus Christ as your only hope and comfort in this life and the next. 18 inches. Doesn't sound like a lot, does it? But if you miss it, it makes an eternal difference. The full quote from Tertullian goes like this. What has Jerusalem to do with Athens, the church with the academy, the Christian with the heretic? After Jesus, we have no need of speculation. After the gospel, no need of research, unquote. That's Tertullian. The more complete quote there helps you see the metonymy or figure of speech that Tertullian employs here where Jerusalem is a stand-in for our faith and our Savior Jesus Christ, of course, who died on the cross for us, just outside Jerusalem's gates. Once for sin, says Peter, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Verse 18 from 1 Peter 3 there. If by Jerusalem, then Tertullian means our precious faith, then by Athens, he means reason. Faith and reason. Sometimes these two faculties, as certainly Tertullian would like to arrange them, they get juxtaposed in an antithetical way, a face-off, if you will, where faith and reason are pitted as enemies of one another. And that seems to be the antagonistic relationship that Tertullian envisions between those two. But do faith and reason always need to be pitted against each other as incompatible rivals when it comes to sharing the gospel? Contrary to Tertullian, it would seem, based on our readings today, that Peter and Paul both find at least a measure of compatibility between the use of reason and the call to repentance and faith when presenting the gospel. First, here's Peter. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope you have, but this do with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3.15. From the ESV. But I think I kind of like the NIV, New International Version, a little better, which says, 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That word for answer or defense in the ESV is apologia, excuse me, apologia in the original Greek. It's a compound word, apo, meaning away from, and logos, meaning a word or a speech against the charges that you're moving away from uh, in, in the courtroom language, in the courtroom use of the word apologia. It's where we get our English word apologetics. Now, apologetics, in the context of home life, may come down to a teenager, for example, defending his case, trying to justify the noticeable dent he came home with in mom's new car. Or perhaps on a special day like today, it could also look like a husband and new father trying desperately to find the right words to explain why little baby did not get mommy a Mother's Day gift. That's where the kind of apologetics you should be looking for is just three simple words. I am sorry. Or, I apologize, dear. But that's not the kind of apologizing they're talking about in theological circles. Nope. There and in the courtroom, too, the, the term takes on a decidedly legal or official connotation. There, the apologist deploys whatever logical argumentation and evidence that he has at his disposal, be it scientific evidence, historical evidence, or philosophical and the like, in order to make the best case to, as Peter says, give a reason for the hope that is in you, doing it with gentleness and respect. Don't forget that last part. Some people make a nice case, but they forget the gentleness and respect. Very important. What we hear Peter encouraging us to do here in his epistle, we also get to see Paul dramatize out. He's going to act it out in Athens from our book of Acts reading today, Acts 17. Because there Paul is apologizing for his faith. Not saying, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian, please forgive me. Not at all. Rather, he's making a well-reasoned, well-researched case for the saving gospel before these pagan philosophers who first heard Paul evangelizing in the Agora, or marketplace. And yes, you could even say that it was Agora Hills because they invite Paul to go up the hill from there to hear, quote, what this babbler has to say. Verse 18. Now there I can readily relate to what Paul experienced with his audience because, hey, let's face it, that's pretty much what a lot of us say to ourselves at church comes sermon time, right? Okay, what does this babbler have to say? Actually, that word for babbler is interesting in and of itself. It's spermologos, literally a seed picker, referring to a person who picks up scraps of learning and culture without making them his own. What were the scraps of learning and culture that Paul picked up? Why, Paul quotes some of their own Greek poets, ancient Stoics, Epimenides, and Erudus. Paul effectively uses these sources before the Athenians as a sort of springboard to the gospel, which is the content that he really wants to get to. But he has to get their attention first, doesn't he? It's almost like he needs to earn a little street cred with them first up front. But then talk about being prepared to give an answer. Paul literally speaks their language. Paul can speak fluent Greek. When Paul is in the synagogue, he speaks both Hebrew and Aramaic. 
When Paul is before the Roman courts and magistrates, he's most likely speaking Latin there as well. Paul knew his rights as a Roman citizen. He was an expert in Jewish law and the sacred writings from which he would freely quote to his Jewish audience. And again, here on the Areopagus, Paul quotes some Stoic poets to some Stoic philosophers. It reminds us of something that Paul once said to the Corinthian church, quote, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. 1 Corinthians 9. That's preparation. As a sort of aside here, I hasten to point out that I'd wager you are probably saying the same thing I'm saying to my own self when it comes to Paul's example of preparedness. I mean, he's probably the best example out there of what Peter is saying regarding always be ready. And you think to yourself, good for Paul, but I could never be that prepared. I could never do what he does or what he did. This is most certainly true, and it's true for me as well. And the good news is you don't have to be Paul. You get to be you in the kingdom of God. You have your own unique audience, as it were, whose language you speak because we're talking about your family members, including extended family, work associates, your neighbors, your professional service people that you hire or they hire you. You have connections and ways of doing things that no pastor, no evangelist, nobody else has in quite the same way that you do. God has already blessed you, and he's already placed you. We call it vocation. You don't have to become a missionary to the Gentile world, although technically you are a Gentile living among Gentiles with a calling to let your light shine and to love your neighbor. So in a sense, you are already on a certain level, that kind of missionary, just as you live out your current vocation, speaking their language as well. At the same time, however, there are those folks specifically called to be missionaries, to be chaplains in the military, pastor, teachers, evangelists, and trainers. And right here, this is a great moment to remind you all as well that one way we can all join the effort to support people who are doing things that we can't exactly do ourselves, um, it's good to mention next week's door offering for Pastor Paul Nelson and his wife, Jenna, and their family in Indonesia, whom we've already begun to support. They are learning the local languages and are becoming experts in reaching out to an audience for which you and I probably would never become experts. But they are. And we'll provide an opportunity next Sunday to contribute to that door offering if you'd like to do so. And this Peace Congregation has always been so generous giving to ministries of the gospel, like uh, Paul Nelson and his family. So I want to thank you for you and for your generosity, your giving consistently. We can't all pick up our families, head over to Indonesia now, can we? But we can find that way that God provides in our own lives to get on board and offer support. There's usually a, a way that does work for us. Likewise, in the very next chapter of Acts, now this is jumping to chapter 18, but we see Paul taking off one hat and putting on his tent maker hat now, working alongside new acquaintances, Priscilla and Aquila, who are also tent makers. That's the next scene we find them in, in the Greek city of Corinth. 
God bless them all. They were bivocational. Tent makers and heavenly mansion recruiters, a.k.a. church planters. Wherever the Spirit led them, they went with persecutions or no persecutions. I read a blurb this week from our friends over at Movie Guide, and some of you probably get the same e-news from them that I get. They were documenting the persecution that actor Chris Pratt experienced prior to the release of his latest Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Many haters wanted to see him replaced as the lead Star-Lord character, and it was because he apparently attended the wrong kind of church. The church didn't have the right letters out in front of the building, and the letters that they were looking for were not LCMS. (laughs) I thought Chris Pratt had a pretty good perspective on the matter, however. Regarding the hate-filled persecution for his faith, he stated, you know, that's just the way it is. Nothing new. 2,000 years ago, they hated him too, he noted, speaking of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good perspective. He, that is Pratt, did not suffer like the Apostle Paul suffered or like our Lord himself suffered to the point of death on the cross. What you and I suffer as well is nothing in comparison with those early martyrs of the Christian church. But Peter writes, nevertheless, to prepare us all for whatever lies ahead. We too shall, or we do share the whole counsel of God, like Paul did on the Areopagus, on Mars Hill. Now remember, Mars and Ares, the Greek name, is the god of war. And that's really fitting here in this situation, even if it's just a battle for the heart and mind on the Areopagus there. Here's the last part of Paul's message that he gave, and it's worth repeating. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You know what man he's referring to, of course, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul did not shrink back from warning others of God's judgment. He also knew Greek, Greek thought, that is, well enough to know that he wouldn't get three cheers for preaching the resurrection of the body because that's pure folly to the Greek whose goal in the afterlife, and even to get a jump started in this life, is to escape the body and the physical realm altogether, not to come back to eternity trapped in a physical body, glorified or not. That was folly to the Greek ear. That lack of enthusiasm for the resurrection notwithstanding, our reading in Acts 17 cuts out right before we learn how fruitful Paul's mountaintop excursion on Mars Hill or the Areopagus was for him. Acts 17.34 reads, Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So the Holy Spirit, who guided Peter and Paul, and who guides his church today, this same Holy Spirit abiding inside you too since the time of your baptism, this Spirit blows where he wills. His holy presence and power will migrate the message of forgiveness in Christ, that critical 18 inches from your head to the heart, something that we can't even, cannot even do for ourselves. All that is in his hands, 
It's beyond our control. Ours is to first gladly receive the good news and then winsomely share the good news and share it in the academy. Share it with the heretics. Share it on hilltops and on the byways and highways. To every creature proclaim the message our Lord himself gave his disciples back in that upper room from our John chapter 14 reading. Because I live, Jesus says, you also will live. Amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.